Are there really such things as unidentified flying objects from outer space called UFOs? Is there really intelligent life elsewhere in the universe? Are people really making contacts from aliens from outer space? And has NASA made contact from aliens? Or maybe is there a cover-up of all this UFO information? Answers to these questions and more in this talk. I want to welcome you to Creation Radio and TV. I'm your host, Mike Riddle, the president and founder of Creation Training Initiative. And our topic today is called UFOs, Aliens, and the Bible. Where I'd like to start is, why do so many people believe in life in outer space? And some of these reasons include, and probably the most important reason is, a strong belief in evolutionism. You see, if life evolved here on Earth, then why can't it evolve elsewhere in space? So that's probably the main reason people believe in extraterrestrial life, the belief in evolutionism. Other answers would be the public education system. They promote sometimes science fiction as reality or science. Another reason would be the government seems to support this idea of life in outer space. The media is another answer. Early childhood indoctrination into belief in life in outer space. And another reason would be a lack of a biblical worldview, not a complete understanding of what the Bible really teaches on this subject. Well, let's go to the education system. I like to talk about a book they're using in some schools now called Life in the universe. It's a science book for non-science majors. Let me talk about some of the chapters in this book. One of the chapters is titled Introduction to Astrobiology. Astrobiology being the science of the study for life in outer space. Another chapter deals with life on earth. They talk about the origin and evolution of life on earth. Another chapter is life among the stars, the search for extraterrestrial life in outer space. So that's what we're getting in our schools. The reality, what they're teaching is a reality of life in outer space. Now, why do we want to search for extraterrestrial life? Well, a couple of clues here. Number one, the meaning of life. People are looking for something bigger than they are for salvation. They're looking for something that will give them meaning other than just plain evolutionism. And another answer would be salvation. They're looking for salvation in, some, in something. For example, there's all these doom and gloom reports that a meteor is going to hit the earth. It's almost a reality is going to happen and all life will be destroyed and we need some alien life to come and save us from this catastrophe. Or maybe 30, 40 years ago, there was the ice age is coming, a new ice age. And today it's not a new ice age, it's global warming. We need somebody to protect us from all of this. Or maybe our resources will run out. Or the sun will burn out of all its fuel. Or maybe mankind will destroy themselves. So we're looking for something to come down and save us, some form of salvation. Now, who actually believes in UFOs? Well, a 2005 Gallup survey showed that about 25% of Americans believe that extraterrestrials have visited this planet sometime in the past. In 2010, a National Geographic Society poll reported that 36% of Americans, 36% of Americans today, or about 80 million people in America, 
believe in UFOs and that they really do exist. And only 17% do not believe in UFOs. That leaves about 43% of the American population are undecided on this issue. Now again, what causes so many to believe in these UFOs? Well, let me give you seven supposed evidences for the existence of UFOs. Number one again is evolution is taught as a fact, including the idea billions of years. So certainly enough time for everything to evolve. How about the vastness of the universe? How could we be so arrogant to believe in this great big universe we're the only life that exists? The long history of alleged sightings, and I use the word alleged sightings, numerous modern sightings by professionals, including politicians, the claims of personal encounters by people, the claims by NASA and other scientists that they actually have physical evidence of these UFOs, and finally, some very smart people believe in UFOs, such as Stephen Hawking. So shouldn't that be enough evidence for everybody to believe in UFOs? Smart people believe in them also. And additionally, there's Hollywood. Since 1947, Hollywood has featured over 500 programs about UFOs and aliens. Let's take a look at some of these pictures. Here's a group of pictures of supposed unidentified flying objects or UFOs coming from outer space. We even have pictures that capture more than one at a time. We have pictures of them even over cities. And here is again Hollywood. Look at all the movies Hollywood has produced. It came from outer space or ancient aliens, invasion of the body snatchers. Some of you may remember some of these movies. Forbidden Planet. How about Star Wars? Or maybe the Twilight Zone, Men in Black, and how about one of these newer ones, Cowboys and Aliens. All these features by Hollywood to promote the idea and help indoctrinate us that aliens really do exist. Matter of fact, according to Hollywood, we even know what they look like. Here's some amazing pictures of aliens, and some of you remember these from the movies, and including Star Trek, Close Encounters, and other movies like that. And then how about some of the TV shows we have today promoting this whole idea of extraterrestrial life, such as Harry Potter, Almost Human, The Walking Dead, Haven, The 100, Resurrection, Warehouse 13, Stargate, The X-Files, Babylon 5, Sanctuary, the infatuation with vampires, and then the new so-called science show called Cosmos. You know, we don't really have to look very far for some amazing creatures. We see them in Hollywood, but you know, God has created even more amazing creatures than Hollywood could even imagine. Let me show you some of these amazing creatures that God created. How about this one? Take a look at this mosquito head. How'd you like to meet one of these that was your size? That would be pretty scary. Or how about a full-grown, life-size, bigger than, than us, house ant? They look pretty scary. Well, they're not so scary about their size, but if you saw one four or five feet tall, that would be pretty scary. And here's another one that's really going to scare you. How about the dust mite? How many of you have those on your pillows at night? That's pretty scary. How can, can you imagine meeting one of these that's two or three feet tall? Or how about this one, the dog chewing louse? These are amazing scaring creatures, 
but aren't we glad that they're all very small? So God has created all kinds of creatures right here on this planet. We really don't have to turn to Hollywood to find amazing creatures. Then there's NASA. Since 1964, NASA has sent 21 spacecraft to the planet Mars, including two what we call land rovers rolling around on the planet. And each one of these came at a cost of between $100 million and $2.5 billion. The primary mission of all these Mars spacecraft was the search for life on Mars, either in the past or the present. For example, the 2013 name for the Mars Mission Project was Mars Atmosphere and Volatile Evolution. Then we had the infamous Mars face. In 1976, NASA's Viking 1 spacecraft, while circling around Mars, snapped a photo of what appeared to be a human face on Mars. And that created an uproar. There was proof of life on Mars in the past. Well, that didn't last for too long. Further photographs from other spacecraft show this was not a face. It was just a Martian landscape with shadows on it. So there again, a lot of hoopla, but no real evidence. Now, let's compare all this, these supposed evidences for life in outer space. Let's compare that with evidence, the supporting evidence. And what I mean by evidence, I'm talking about logic and science, not hearsay evidence, and not fiction, but observable science and good logic. So let's talk about six different problems with life from outer space visiting this planet. And problem number one is going to be the origin of life itself. How well have scientists done in creating life in a laboratory? Or have they even come up with any plausible explanations for how this could have happened? Well, the answer is, Zero. None. They have not done very well at all. Let me read you a few quotes from leading scientists on this issue. The first gentleman has his PhD, a double PhD, one in computer information and a second PhD in, science, in chemistry, and he states this. Since there is no known scientific procedure to generate life from the laboratory, let alone by some prebiotic, prebiotic mechanism, one could assume the probability of life from purely physical causes is zero. Now, here's another quote from a scientist who has his PhD in physics. And he states, A great deal of effort has been expended in finding theories for the origin of life without success. And here's the third gentleman who has, again, a PhD in chemistry. And he states, the origin of life from non-living chemicals has been an article of blind faith, not science. In other words, our best scientists can't create a single cell. Matter of fact, our best scientists cannot even create the components of a living cell. For example, let's take a look at what we've done in the laboratory. How, how close have we come to creating life in a laboratory? Well, let's talk about just a protein, just a protein. And what we know based on observable and repeatable science, this is not assumptions, this is not science fiction, folks, 
uh, observable and repeatable science demonstrates that life could never start in the presence of oxygen in the atmosphere. Why is that? Well, we need oxygen to survive, but at the molecular level, oxygen destroys chemical bonds, so life could never start with oxygen in the atmosphere. We also know from observable and repeatable science that life could not start if there was no oxygen in the atmosphere. Why is that? Because if there's no oxygen, we have no ozone to protect us. And without that protection, the ultraviolet rays of the sun will come down and fry all the potential chemicals forming life or any forms of life at that point. So we know based on observable and repeatable science that life cannot start with oxygen and it cannot start without oxygen. Well, what about water, Mike? Well, here again we go. Based on observable and repeatable science, we know life could not start in water. Why is that? Well, there's a process called hydrolysis. Hydro means water. Hydrolysis literally means water splitting. See, we need water to survive, but again, at the molecular level, water destroys chemical bonds. As soon as any of these things called amino acids might have bonded together to try and form a protein, within a matter of weeks, they would have all been destroyed in the oceans. That is a scientific fact, not assumption and not allegory. Well, here's another great problem for the evolution of life. It is called amino acids in the shape they come in. See, we have things called amino acids. And amino acids can form together to make what we call proteins or the building blocks of life. Now, amino acids come in two shapes. Just like we have a left hand and a right hand. My left hand and right hand are about the same, but they're not quite the same because I'm going to put one hand behind the other. We notice the thumb and fingers on the opposite side. But our hands are what we call mirror images of each other. They're mirror images. And these amino acids come in the same shape two shapes called left-handed amino acids and right-handed amino acids. What's the difference? They're made up of the same atoms or same components, just like our hands. Here's the problem. All amino acids and all proteins used in life are left-handed. There are no right-handed amino acids used in proteins in life anywhere. Well, what's the problem about that? Well, the natural tendency, in other words, left to itself as evolution would be, the tendency is always to bond left and right-handed. In other words, come up with an even mixture of left and right-handed amino acids, and that has been the result of every experiment we have done. We always come up with an even number of left and right-handed amino acids. And folks, that is not close to life. That is as far away from life as you can get. That is a poison to life. Life requires only left-handed amino acids and proteins. And folks, there are trillions and trillions of these in your body and they're all left-handed. That is an insurmountable problem for evolution to overcome. They haven't even come close. Now, since all Darwinian evolution rests upon the origin of life, the origin of that first living cell, it is critical for evolutionists to either create this in laboratory or come up with some plausible explanation for how this could have happened. And as yet, they have not. In other words, the origin of life is a critical component of all evolution. Without any observational evidence, how that happened is nothing more than a matter of faith. It is not science. It is faith. Attempting to push the origin of life back to billions of years does not answer the question. 
how did life originate? Billions of years adds nothing more than more faith to the issue. Our best scientists can't create it, and there is no plausible explanation how it could have happened. And since life cannot start here on Earth, why would we believe it could start anywhere else in this universe with even more harsh conditions than we have on this planet? Therefore, to talk about life elsewhere in this universe is meaningless and a matter of faith, and it is also just science fiction. That was problem number one, the origin of life. It can't happen here, folks. Then why do you believe it can happen anywhere else other than you just have faith it does? So problem number two deals with distance. And I want to talk about the speed of light. The speed of light, how far can light travel in one year? And that's about 5.8 trillion miles. We'll just round it off to 6 trillion miles. Now, how fast is that? For light to go from the Earth to the moon would take about two seconds. That's pretty fast. For the light to go from the Earth to Mars would be about four minutes. To go to the nearest star would take about four years. To go across the Milky Way would take about 100,000 years. To travel to the nearest galaxy would be about 2 million years, and the second closest galaxy would take about 20 million years. So this universe is vast. Now, let's take a look how long it would take a spaceship to travel, let's just say, to the nearest star, which happens to be about a little over 4 light years away, or about 25 trillion miles away. Well, let's suppose you want a spacecraft going 25,000 miles an hour. And incidentally, that is much faster than our space shuttle goes. Traveling 25,000 miles an hour, it would take you 114,000 years to get to the nearest star. If you were to travel 100,000 miles an hour, that would take over 28,000 years to get there. How about if we were to go 500,000 miles an hour? Well, that would take 5,700 years to get there. Well, how about if we traveled 1 million miles an hour? Well, that would take a little over 2,800 years to get there, folks. These distances are vast, and there's no known vehicles that can travel that fast. Well, let's say, for example, suppose you wanted to build a vehicle, a very fast one, and you wanted to make it to the nearest star in just 40 years, so you'd have a little time to enjoy it when you got there. You know how fast you'd have to go in a spacecraft to get to the nearest star in 40 years? Over 67 million miles an hour. Folks, these are beyond our current comprehension. So that's problem number two, the distances. Problem number three, I'm going to call radio waves. Now, we watch some of these Star Trek movies. And we see the man on there called Captain Kirk communicating halfway across the universe in just a one-hour episode. Folks, that is incredible. Because did you know radio waves do not travel any faster than the speed of light? So let's say, for example, you wanted to communicate to another planet. And let's suppose there was a planet by the nearest star other than the sun, the nearest star, which is four light years away. And let's say that planet had intelligent life on there. And that intelligent life decided they wanted to come to Earth. And incidentally, that would take them going to speed of light four years. And once they got here to Earth, they decided to phone home. It would take that radio message 
four years to get back to the planet and another four years for the reply to get back here to Earth, folks. We're talking real science here, not Star Trek. To get your radio transmission to the nearest galaxy would take two million years. By the time it got there, folks, everybody's dead. You see, when we come to reality, this whole idea of extraterrestrial space travel to Earth doesn't make any scientific sense. It might be good for entertainment, science fiction, and Hollywood, but it is certainly not science. Well, let's go to problem number four. I call this space travel and energy. See, it takes energy to propel some type of vehicle to speeds. In other words, your automobile, it takes energy to propel it to 60 miles an hour. Likewise, it would take a lot of energy to propel a spacecraft to go these speeds that could go to these distant stars or planets. In other words, to propel just a one-pound object just half the speed of light, to get it to half the speed of light would be equivalent to 98 atomic bombs. That's how much energy it would take. To propel a spacecraft like the space shuttle to go near the speed of light would take enough energy to be equivalent to 73 million atomic bombs. And then you have to slow yourself down if you want to land, and then you have to speed up again, folks. You see, this is reality, not science fiction. And then problem number five I call space stuff. That's the technical term, stuff. Space is full of dust. I one, just to get to, just hitting one of these pieces of space dust, going one-tenth the speed of light, would be like running into 10 tons of dynamite. You see, the faster you go, the greater the impact. Encountering a particle the size of a pea going near the speed of light would be equivalent to hitting more than two atomic bombs. Everybody's dead, folks. You see, reality does not favor extraterrestrial life traveling here. And problem number six, let's talk about just the facts. A typical comment we get from pe people who believe in UFOs is this. UFOs must be real because of the weight of the evidence. That's the talk we get. Folks, there's not one legitimate documented evidence for life anywhere outside this planet. But despite the fact there's no real physical evidence, people continue to want and believe in evolution, in evolution and life in outer space. The, next, the explanation is always, let me tell you what I saw. We never seem to come up with the physical evidence. It's always, let me tell you what I saw. See, in science, folks, we need hard evidence, not let me tell you what I saw. Now let's go to what I call the second part of this talk. We've seen the scientific evidence clearly does not support extraterrestrial life. It might be good for Hollywood. It might be good for watching science fiction movies, but certainly not real science. But the second part is this. Did God create other life in this universe? Did he create intelligent life anywhere else in this universe? So let's talk about the Bible and aliens. And we'll start with the book of Genesis. In the book of Genesis, it teaches clearly that God created everything in six literal days. Not millions of years, but six literal days. That means if there's any life out there in space, it had to be created during that six literal days, incidentally, about 6,000 years ago, 
not millions. The Bible does not support that. And incidentally, science really does not support that either. The overwhelming science supports a very young earth and universe. So God created everything in six days. Secondly, the heavens, including the stars, were created for God's glory in signs and wonders, but not, it doesn't say anywhere, for aliens. Another point, the entire creation is under the curse. Why is that? Because of sin. Adam and Eve rebelled against God and was called sin. And because of that rebellion, God placed a curse on this entire universe. In other words, the entire universe, not just earth, but the entire universe and everything in it is under the curse. And we see that in Romans chapter 8, verses 21 and 22. Next, Jesus came to this planet as a human being, not as some other alien life form. Next, Christ died once for all for the atonement of sins. We see this in Hebrews chapter 9 and 1 Peter chapter 3. And then the Bible makes no provision for God to redeem any other creatures in this universe. We see this in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 16, where it states, For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. In other words, folks, it comes down to this. If there's life elsewhere in this universe, they are also under the curse. But the Bible teaches that only the descendants of Adam and Eve can be saved. Therefore, if there is intelligent life out there in the universe, they're under the curse with no hope of salvation. We also see this in Romans 5, verse 8, where it states, But God demonstrates His own love toward us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It doesn't talk about aliens or anybody else, folks. So if there is intelligent life, they are doomed forever and ever under the curse. So what is it about the UFOs that drive so many people to believe they exist? When overwhelming evidence speaks to the contrary. When such visitations, all these so-called visitations, folks, contradict all known laws of science in chemistry, physics, and biology. The laws of science say it simply could not happen. So again, Bringing this to a close, what is the common denominator? It is evolutionism. Mankind is looking for some meaning outside of ourselves. They're looking everywhere except the only solution they could possibly have. You see, only the Bible has the answer. Let me finish by answering two very big questions. One of the reasons people believe in life in outer space is the vastness, how big the universe is. They say it's arrogant to believe we're the only life in this universe. But the Bible does give an answer for the, why the universe is so big. Let me read five scriptures that teach why this universe is so big. And the first one comes from Daniel chapter 4, verse 3, and it states, How great are his signs and how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. Why is the universe so big? Signs and wonders. Then we can turn to Psalm chapter 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Why is the universe so big? For the glory of God. Then we can turn to Psalm 18, verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth, 
who have set your glory above the heavens. Why is the universe so big? For the glory of God. And then we can turn to Psalm 18, verses 3 and 4, where it reads, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him? Why is the universe so big? To humble man. And finally, we can turn to Romans 1, 19 and 20, where it states, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even as eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. So why is the universe so big? So we have no excuse for not believing in a greater God. That's why the universe is so big. And his word is true. See, mankind is looking for salvation elsewhere. They're not going to find it anywhere but in God's Word. And we see this in two verses. Number one, John 14, 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then we can turn to Acts chapter 4, verse 12, where it reads, Nor is there salvation in any other, for there's no other name under the heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Salvation is through Jesus Christ and Him alone. And if you're looking for answers, folks, don't look to outer space. Don't look to science for your answers. Turn to the One, the Creator of all things, the One who called everything into existence by His great power, and the One who says He cares for you and waits for your response. His name is Jesus. Thank you, and God bless you. If these lessons had been a blessing to you, you might consider financially supporting the Ministry of Creation Training Initiative. You can do this by going to our website, creationtraining.org. Again, that's creationtraining.org. Your tax-deductible donation of just $20, $50 or more a month, or a one-time gift of any amount will make you an education partner in building an army of Christian educators who can teach the biblical account of creation and train others to be able to defend their faith and be biblically faithful to God's word as it states in 1 Peter 3.15. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear.